So you are clearly the, the real deal because you're here on a long weekend. Well done. <laughs> nice to see some new faces. Welcome again. Um, as uh, Nate said, my name's Ollie. I'm part of the eldership team of this church. Paul and Kate are taking a weekend off. They just had a baby recently, so they're just taking some time as a family um, to rest up and adapt to their fifth child. Um, yeah, so it's really good to be with you here this morning. Uh, I was at the student camp yesterday in Sutherland, and just such a great time with the, with the students, um, God doing amazing things there. So this morning, if you have been around or if you haven't been around, we are looking at a series called Crossroads, um, and we're taking some of the I am statements that Jesus made. He made these incredible statements, I am the bread of life, I am um, the way, the truth, and the life, a number of these things, and how they intersect with the deepest questions and needs of the human heart. And even though so many years have passed since he spoke those words, they are still so alive and so speak to our culture and to our hearts today. And so my topic this morning deals with the human quest for truth. And before we begin, I'm going to just clarify some assumptions. Firstly, I'm going to assume that while many of you here this morning may be convinced followers of Jesus, that there are also people here who are seeking, perhaps unconvinced, maybe even skeptical about the Christian faith. And perhaps you believe, as many have said to me, that all roads lead to Rome. Surely all roads lead to Rome. Surely there are many ways to get to God, that every religion has a version of the truth. And if that's you, I want to say welcome and thank you for giving church another chance. It's a courageous step, I know. And I pray that this morning, as we open the word of God, that he will help you to find the answers to some of your questions. Secondly, I'm going to assume that you are all thinking human beings. That in some way, shape, or form, you give deep thought and consideration to the ultimate questions. Questions like, how and why did I come to be here? What is this life all about? What is our purpose here on this earth? In short, I'm going to assume that you have a thought-through worldview. What's a worldview? Basically, a guy called James Sire in his book, The Universe Next Door, argues that everyone has a worldview. It's a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or a set of presuppositions, which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold either consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Sire further argues that Our worldview is made up of our essential rock-bottom answers to seven questions. The first question is, what is prime reality? What is really real? The second is, what is the nature of the world around us? Thirdly, what is a human being? Fourth, what happens to a person at death? Fifth, why is it possible to know anything at all? Six, how do we know what is right and wrong? And lastly, what is the meaning of human history? Furthermore, I'm assuming that having considered these questions, you are not content with hearsay, opinions, and fluff when it comes to something so important, so fundamental, and that you are looking for something solid and real upon which to build your life. And I think at least on this point, everyone in this room can agree that to be human is to wonder about the nature of ultimate reality. But if we want to start to gain clarity around the specifics of those ultimate truths and how we answer those questions, 
and how we can order our lives accordingly, and then I think it starts to get a bit tricky because someone's going to get their toes stepped on. And so before we consider that further, can I invite you to turn with me to our text this morning, which is going to be John chapter 18, verse 28 to 40. If you've got your Bibles here, you can turn there, John 18. Otherwise, you're welcome to follow us or follow me on the screen as I read. It's a story of Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves, the Jewish high priests and the religious leaders, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Cool. So here we have Jesus, placed on trial by the Jewish high priests and religious leaders. And they don't want to dirty their own hands by killing him themselves, even though in their hearts they're baying for his blood. So they bring him to the Roman governor Pilate, misrepresenting him to be a revolutionary, an enemy of Rome, and themselves uh, friends of Rome. So Pilate tries Jesus, finds nothing in him to accuse. And so becoming a little confused, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, and I'm paraphrasing, my kingdom, Pilate, is completely outside of your point of reference. It doesn't function like your Roman kingdom or the kingdoms of this world. I came into the world to bear witness about the truth behind all things, the ultimate reality that shapes all reality. Pilate, probably getting more and more confused and uncomfortable, replies with this question, what is truth? What is truth? And why does he ask this? Pilate has been raised on the teachings and religion of Rome. Now, in the cultural melting pot of the Roman Empire, the Roman gods were polymorphous, which means they possessed multiple forms, multiple personas, attributes, or aspects. 
Charles King argues that polymorphism served as a safety valve to defuse religious tensions in this culturally diverse melting pot of an empire. Everyone could be right because what one thought, what one thought of a God might be a different aspect of what someone else thought. To Pilate, therefore, truth was an uncertain concept. Truth was subjective to a person's viewpoint and experience and perceptions. Truth was fluid rather than solid and could not really be known. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Our culture today, shaped to a large extent by the doctrines of secularism, postmodernism, and relativism, has taught us that there is no such thing as an objective standard of truth when it comes to these ultimate questions. And sadly, research has shown that even within the church, a significant percentage of people believe that truths are something constructed by personal experience and perception, such that you have your truth and I have my truth. And who are you to argue that your truth is more valid than my truth or vice versa? Which, of course, begs the question, is that statement true for both of us? Some of you got that. I'm glad. Thank you. (laughs) But according to Jesus Christ, truth is not a relative concept. He defined his life's mission, his reason for coming into the world as this, to bear witness to the truth. That means that Jesus is claiming that there is such a thing as truth. That truth is an objective standard and that truth can be known. Firstly, there is such a thing as truth. Author Jonathan Morrow says truth is a basic fact of existence. Even though people seem confused about what truth is these days, or skeptical about the possibility of truth, deep down they have an awareness of truth. There is a way things are. Truth is what you bump into when you are wrong. I like that. The classic common sense notion of truth is that when, is when what I say or believe corresponds to the way things really are. That is reality. So there is such a thing as truth. Secondly, truth is an objective standard. That means that it's not subjective. It's not my truth versus your truth. But there is this thing called objective truth, which means that it is true whether I like it or not, whether I agree with it or not. And let's face it, some days it's hard to be a follower of Jesus. Some days I don't feel like following Jesus because my feelings are telling me something different. The people and the culture around me are telling me something different. But I stick with it because I know it is true. I know that God is still real and that reality is defined by him and not by me. James Sire again says that theism, the belief in one God, teaches that not only is there a moral universe, but there is an absolute standard by which all moral judgments are measured. God himself, his character of goodness, holiness, and love, is the standard. Furthermore, Christians and Jews hold that God has revealed his standard in the various laws and principles expressed in the Bible. There is thus a standard of right and wrong, and people who want to know it can know it. Truth, therefore, is not grounded in what we can perceive. Truth is grounded in God. Another author, Darrow Miller, says that reality, of course, is an integration of the physical and the spiritual. God exists outside of nature, but nonetheless, nature is real and is his creation. Truth, therefore, is found in God and in creation. 
It is outside of us, independent of our limited perceptions, which include our five senses plus our reason. So this is in sharp contrast with the secularist view in which there is no spiritual realm, no God, and where nothing exists outside the material, mechanical, natural order. And therefore, truth needs to be personally discovered through sensory insight, through what we can taste and feel and see and touch. The problem with this view is that without God, there is actually no absolute standard for truth that's objectively true for all. Therefore, all truths become subjective, and our highest value is tolerance. And then we quickly find ourselves in a very dangerous place, because who am I or who are you to say what is right and what is wrong? And who holds us accountable for our actions? We end up with a culture where everyone simply does what is right in his or her own eyes. Which sounds great at first, but when someone rapes your daughter, there won't be one person who is not crying out for an objective standard of truth and justice. When we distance ourselves from God as the standard of absolute truth, we quickly degenerate. For we have foolishly leapt into space without being tethered to the ship. Simply look at the examples of communist revolutions in the 20th century. Prime examples of the ghastly atrocities that human beings sink to when they abandon all reference to God. Thirdly, truth can be known. God is revealed in the scriptures as a rational being, which means that he has a reason for all that he does. He's not random or capricious, but he acts in accordance with his eternal nature. Furthermore, he has created man, you and me, in his image. Therefore, we are reasonable creatures with orderly minds and the capacity to grasp his message to us. And so he has revealed truth about who he is and what he does to us in two ways. The first way is special revelation. Special revelation is God's message contained in Scripture. The Bible records the mega works of God in history, teaching us that God is not only over and separate from his creation, but he's also involved in it, governing the universe by his providence and working out an eternal plan to redeem it. For example, listen to these three verses. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33 9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. John 1, 1 1-4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made that have been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So when we look at these three verses, three important truths are taught. Firstly, that God existed before anything else. Secondly, that He created everything there is out of nothing. And thirdly, that his words are powerfully creative, and by them he spoke creation into existence. So that's when we examine God's special revelation in Scripture, there is a truth that we can learn from that. Apart from God's special revelation, we also have general revelation. What's that? That's the message revealed in what God has made. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so, while creation is not able to preach the gospel to us, it does teach us important truths about who God is. Um, 
for example, in my own story, I remember in grade 10, sitting in a classroom and looking out at the Helderberg on a beautiful day, and the girl sitting next to me was a Christ follower, and she said, like, I don't, I don't understand how people can see that and not believe in a God. And just sitting there, that resonated with my heart, and it was an, actually an instrumental moment in my own journey of coming to faith. And so God's creation reveals something of who He is. So to recap, I've argued that there is such a thing as truth. I've argued that truth is an objective standard and that truth can be known. And I'd like to make three more comments about the nature of truth. Fourthly, truth is exclusive. And what do I mean by this? I mean that to believe that something is true necessitates that to believe the opposite is untrue. So, for example, John 14, verse 6, which we're going to look at just now, says that Jesus is the only way to God, right? Now, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all disagree on this. And we need to consider the facts. So, Judaism claims that Jesus was not the Messiah, right? Islam claims that he was a great prophet. And Christianity claims that he is the Messiah. So then, either none of them is true, or one of them is true. But they cannot all be true because truth is exclusive by nature if jesus is the messiah as john 8 verse 24 and numerous other scriptures tell us anyone who does not accept that is excluding themselves from the salvation that he offers and many people stumble over this saying how can you say that how can jesus exclude people like that But please bear in mind that Christianity is not only radically exclusive because it holds that there is such a thing as absolute truth. It is also radically inclusive. It's inclusive because absolutely anyone can become a follower of Christ. No one is excluded on the basis of their social status, their IQ, their race, their gender. And the offer is completely free. You don't even need to have money. Jesus Christ invites all to come to him. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is radically, radically inclusive. Fifthly, truth is personal. It's going to start getting fun now. I'm glad you're all still awake. Well, I hope you're all still awake. In secularism, the worldview that gave birth to relativism The universe is ultimately impersonal and mechanical. If we're not creations, beloved creations, designed by an intelligent designer, then we are random mutations of time and chance. Mere biological machines enslaved to and predetermined by our materialistic box. In this case, there is no such thing as absolute truth, as we've said already. As I have contended this morning, there is such a thing as truth. And the fountainhead of truth is Jesus Christ. And as we consider the nature of truth, I want to draw your attention to these famous words that Jesus spoke in chapter 14 of John's gospel as the time drew near for him to die on the cross. Verse 3 to 7. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going, the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Here we have an incredible exchange of Jesus dialoguing with his closest disciples who are deeply confused about where this is all heading. And Jesus says, you know the way. And his disciples are like, Jesus, we, we, don't know. we don't know the way. We're seriously lost here. And suddenly Jesus comes out with this incredible statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he's saying truth is not just real. Truth is not just something you know. You can know truth is personal. I am the truth. I am the full and final revelation of what God is like. I am the source of all truth. I determine what is true. And apart from me and what I reveal, you cannot know the truth about God. You cannot know the really real. And you cannot find your way to God. The book of Hebrews says long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. His character and attributes are the outshining of the glory of God. He is utterly true, and he cannot lie or make false promises. He is utterly good and pure, and there is nothing in him that is not good. He is, in a word, holy. If you want to know God, if you want to know what the Father is like, then you need only to look at the Son. You need only to look at Jesus Christ, who has made himself known. Not only that, but he has given his very life to open the way back to the Father, to make relationship with this holy God possible for us who have sinned and rebelled against him. Finally then, knowing the truth sets people free for life. John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Real freedom, guys, is not found in abandoning the pursuit of truth. Freedom, true freedom, is found in embracing the one who is true. Jesus says that knowing the truth, knowing me, Knowing my unchanging character and my redeeming love and my eternal wisdom will set you free. Free from slavery to sin. Free from death. Free from a wasted, purposeless life. Free from fear. James 1, 16 to 18 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 1 John 5 verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So in conclusion, Journalist G.K. Chesterton said, Suppose we hear an unknown man spoken of by many men. Suppose we were puzzled to hear that some men said he was too tall and some too short. Some objected to his fatness. Some lamented his leanness. Some thought him too dark and some too fair. One explanation would be that he might be an odd shape. But there is another explanation. He might be the right shape. 
Perhaps, in short, this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing, at least the normal thing, the center. So if you're a religious seeker here this morning and you're seeking for truth, can I invite you to consider John chapter 18, verse 34, where Jesus says to Pilate, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? So Jesus asked Pilate if he has formed his opinion about who Jesus is, his own opinion about who Jesus is, or if he's merely going on what he's been told. And this is crucial. Can I urge you, seeker of truth, to investigate Jesus Christ, not to take your opinion on him from hearsay, from the media, from what a parent or a lecturer or your friends or people on social media might have said about him, but rather to come to him humbly and hungrily, delving into the words of Scripture and saying, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, help me to see you. Help me to know you. And if you're still not sure, let me give you four reasons quickly why it makes a lot of sense to start your exploration with Christianity. First, Christianity is testable. That is, objective evidence for it or against it can be offered, and the evidence means something. For example, the New Testament strongly states that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, our faith is worthless. So if there is no good reason to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then Christianity can be dismissed. We can take it off the table and you can move on to something else. Of course, I want to encourage you to take an unbiased look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You may be surprised just how strong the case really is. Secondly, in Christianity, salvation is free. The contrast here is that salvation or enlightenment requires an incredible amount of effort in other religions. But Christianity is the only faith system where salvation from our problem of sin is a free gift from a loving God. That is incredible. That is worth investigating. Understanding that changed my life forever. Thirdly, in Christianity, you get a tight worldview fit. That is, the picture that Christianity paints of the world matches the way the world really is. If you consider, for example, issues like evil, suffering, and pain, most Eastern religions, such as Hinduism and Buddhism, teach that evil, suffering, and pain are illusions. They're not real. But we all know that evil and suffering are not illusions. They are real, and they affect us every day. And so Christianity does not shy away from the reality of these things. Rather, it has, it has always wrestled with them. Therefore, Christianity seems to be more in line with the way that the world actually is. Fourthly, Christianity has Jesus at its center. Nowadays, it seems that everyone wants to make Jesus a part of their religion. Jesus is like the universal religious figure. Almost every major religion mentions him and has a high opinion of him because they cannot ignore him. Does it not therefore make the most sense to begin your spiritual explorations with the only faith system that is based on the authentic eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, his teaching and his ministry? Christianity is founded on the reliable record of the God-man known as Jesus and ought to be the first point of departure in any seeker's journey of faith. And so if that's you, You've come to a good place to start that exploration. And there are people here who would love to help you and walk with you. So can I ask you, if, if that is you, please speak to the person that you came with. Or come and chat to someone, one of the leaders in the front here. It doesn't have to be me. There's many capable, qualified people in this church who can chat through this with you. 
um, and let them point you in the right direction. And then for the rest of us, we're going to take communion now. And just as a response to this word, I want to remind us of that scripture, John 18, verse 34. Pilate, where Jesus says to Pilate, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Do you say this of your own accord, or did someone else tell you something about me? If you want to seriously consider the claims of Jesus Christ, it's really crucial that you heed his words here and become willing to let go of some of the opinions of him that you may hold due to what people have told you or what the culture's ingrained in us from since we were babies and form your own opinion of him through genuine engagement with the scriptures. You need to ask yourself the question and be willing to explore the options. Is Jesus just a great moral teacher? One of many who offers us good advice on how to live? Or is he, as he claims to be, the unique son of God who came to reveal to us what God is like and gave his own life in order to save us from our sin, restore our broken relationship with God, with each other, and with creation? How you answer that question will determine not just your future in this world, but for all eternity. And so as we take communion, which is the way that Jesus commanded us to remember him, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this opportunity to reconnect with him, to give thanks to him, to remember him, to realign our lives with his revealed will in humble submission. And if you're a seeker here this morning, I encourage you to take this moment to reflect on the gospel that is portrayed in the, the broken bread and the poured out, well, it's juice, Normally it's, it's wine or juice. And what that speaks of, that speaks of the gospel. It's the good news about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, whose body was broken for our healing and reconciliation, to make one new body of black and white and rich and poor, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, into one body reconciled with God and with each other, and whose righteous blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and to bring us into right standing with God. So I can invite you to do that as you come up and take some bread and some juice.